Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 33 of Control the Controllables. Today's guest is Donald Young. Lots of you will know Donald from being world junior number one, age 14 or 15. And he broke into the top 100 in the world, ATP, at age 18. He's had a fantastic story full of highs and lows. He goes into the detail of this, how it's made him feel, you know, what he could have done different throughout his career and how he still has an unbelievable love for the sport. We also touch on discrimination in sport, which he, he speaks very openly and honestly about. And once again, there's many great learnings in this podcast. So wherever you are, sit back, enjoy and over to Donald Young. Donald Young. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on Control the Controllables from myself and Dan. A big, big thank you for giving your time up to us today, man. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Donald, just for the, the listeners listening in, you're obviously uh, had, a, had a phenomenal career and just a short profile on yourself. Uh, you've had a career high of 38 in the world. You've competed at all the Grand Slams. You're a junior Wimbledon and U.S. Open champion and a former junior world number one. Once again, Donald, a big, big thank you for coming on Control the Controllables. Thank you. Nice. Thanks. Glad to be here again. Uh, it was fun talking to you guys. Yeah. And, and nice to meet you, Donald. My name's Dan. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How's, how's things your end and how's it been over the last few weeks in this kind of crazy time, huh? Yeah, times are crazy. Um, things have honestly been um, not that bad for me. Um, earlier during quarantine and COVID hit, um, I had a couple EXOs I played, so I was able to get some matches in. It was 16 guaranteed matches, so that was great for me. Um, I had a lot of practice. Um, my parents are my coaches, so and my dad also coaches Taylor Townsend, so I was able to have kind of like a built-in person that can get some balls back, you know, so that, that was good. And then um, as things got better, I was able to hit with some guys that go to college here and play pros. So it, it's been pretty good, actually. And um, I've been working out a lot. So I've been enjoying the gym and uh, taking a lot of naps as well and a lot of Netflix. <laughs> the, the, the exhibitions you mentioned, so where, where have they been played? They were in Atlanta, actually. Yeah, okay. they were in Atlanta. Yeah, they were in Atlanta. They were um, pretty cool. Um, it started in Germany with Dustin Brown. Um, he he, uh, he had a connect there, Rodney Rapson, and they just kind of put it on there, and then they wanted to bring it to the States, and it happened to be in Atlanta. So it just worked out perfect. I didn't have to go anywhere. It was very close. How was the format on, on, on those events? How did that yeah, work it was, out? Uh, yeah, it was put on by XL Tennis. So it was um, two matches a day, uh, two sets, no ad, and a breaker, for a 10-point tiebreaker for the third set. So every day he played two matches. So it was a lot of matches, which was pretty tiring, but it was quick and you knew you were going to get matches. So it was good competition and match play in a short amount of time. And how serious, how serious did they take the protocols? Obviously, that's a, it's a hot topic currently. You know, yeah, it was super serious. Um, nobody was allowed to watch. You can bring one person, the umpire wore a mask and, and gloves, um, touched rackets. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, um, a lot of social distancing. It was nothing going on, and yeah. it was great. It was just you were just playing and uh, competing. You wore a mask to walk on the court, and yeah. you know, we just went at it after that. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good sport to social distance, isn't it? I think tennis, but obviously, uh, we have to. It's as it happens, as this conversation has been set up, where probably twenty four hours ago we obviously found out the news about Francis Tiafoe, which is in your town, which is in Atlanta, you know, going on. So are you due to be playing that exhibition as well? Uh, no, actually, I, was, uh, I wasn't initially um, one of the people there. It was the top eight Americans. So, uh, you know, the, the guy who was putting it on as a tournament director for Atlanta, and uh, he asked me to kind of be, like, the guy that was, like, the sixth – or the guy if someone got tested positive or got injured or something. But – I have world team tennis coming up, so I really didn't, um, you know, want to like kind of risk it. And, you know, it was going to be some fans. And it looked like a great event. 
But um, yeah, it just didn't work for me. I had plans. Um, yeah. Yesterday was the fourth. I was cooking and grilling with the family, and I was I was doing some of the work. So I was kind of <laughs> I needed to be there. <laughs> but um, the event looks great, and it's not far from my house. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate about Francis. Um, did he say he was feeling fine? He took his test in Florida, and, and we're close. We're cool as well. So it was just um, to see it go on like that was kind of unfortunate. And I have to ask your opinion, mm-hmm. Mr. Djokovic, and the event. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, We've got, we got to get your opinion on that as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. Like, honestly, I was sitting here and I was watching it on TV and it was giving me, like, anxiety. Like, the whole thing gave me anxiety. Like, I, I texted a couple of players um, and I was just like, yo, what is this? Like, it's an act. Like, they're, they're hugging because the day before I saw the pictures with the ball kids and stuff and they were like all, um, you know, close and touching and playing and touching everything. And I was like, wow, like Serbia or I forget where they were. Yeah, Serbia, they were in Belgrade. I was like, it must be amazing over there. And I'm thinking like, there's no way. But the whole thing, I'm kind of, you know, uh, you know, compute like here versus there. And wow. And then when I saw the guys hugging and, and touching, and then later the the club scene. I was just like, yo, I, I can't even do that on a good normal day, let alone <laughs> you know these type of times. And and I was just like, man, if no one, yeah, I was like, there's no way the virus was just not there. Yeah, and it just shows you that if you've not taken the proper precautions, like it's still around. You know, even though the cases might be low, it's it's you know there to be had if you don't follow protocol. And we have we have it because we do have a bit of we have a bit of a laugh. It was like a scene out of The Hangover, you know. (laughs) However, I guess the the real the real serious side of it is it 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 potentially affects your living and and your living and and, and many tennis players living because I guess it's gonna it's gonna have an impact. You'd think on the U.S. swing. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. And then the rest of the year. Yeah, like for the guys, like we were speaking about, they were like, man, this is going to single-handedly torpedo the rest of the year and the tour, you know, because it's just, you know, you have your, you know, the president of the Players Association and and the, and then you, and they're having events like this and these are the same guys, you know, in all seriousness, they're going to come to the U.S. and the other terms to play as well. And, you know, it doesn't show that the, the mindset is going to change much. Like, you know, if that's the mindset there, it's going to be the mindset here and they were the main ones complaining about the protocols they were put in place to make it a safe environment so hopefully with all that said that changed the narrative and their mindset and opinion on the fact that things need to be handled totally different and hopefully things can kind of in a safe way if it can go on like that like proceed you know because a lot of guys want to get back to work make some money and you know me personally I'm more into the safety than getting getting out there. I would rather get out there when it's like safe to do so. But if it's a safe way to do it now, then I'm all for it. Like the EXO event I did. But when you put 128 male players, 128 female players, some doubles players, all in one spot, and you're gonna tell them you have to stay at a hotel and you can't go out and do stuff and what they normally like doing. I just, yeah, I just would love to see how that works and I hope it can work. And are you planning to play that US swing Donald? Uh, well, you know, it, well, the way, honestly, it looks like a lot of guys might not be coming, so I might get in, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. The U.S. Open, I, I would consider only because it looks like they're having all the right protocols in place for that. The I would not be up for traveling to Europe to play, you know, uh, hop on a plane for that long, personally. Yep. But some of those tournaments are my favorite tournaments. So I love DC. Um, it was my first semifinal on tour and my first like top 10 win. I played there. Um, I have a lot of friends there, even though they can't come watch, but I just know a lot of people and I like the vibe. So it's kind of a tough decision for me because I love playing the US and I love these two tournaments that are going to happen. So if things get better, I wouldn't have any problem going to play. But if they don't, I'm definitely not going to. Yeah, because I think it's, there is a there's an even bigger thing here. Obviously, we're talking about tennis and people's people's livings, but ultimately, there's people's lives at stake, and that's right. you know, that's 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 our first and foremost that has to be at the forefront of our minds. If we were to just ask the blunt question, do you 
think there will be any more ATP and WTA tennis in 2020. What do you think? What does your heart tell you? <laughs> when I listen to the calls and the people in charge, I, I'm 100% positive they're going to have more tournaments because they're so focused on crowning a year in number one and having their year in championships because for the ATP, that's where uh, they make all of their money or most of their money for, for the tour. So any way possible, they're going to make that happen. So, yeah. So it seems like it's more of like a, I don't, I don't know, more of like a business decision than it is, you know, really thinking about, I don't, I just don't know what happens if a few people test positive in that bubble during the tournament. And then do you keep going? You just remove them and keep playing or, or how does it go? It's a lot of questions. Yeah, there is. I mean, we had we had John Millman on the show, and I'm sure you know John very well. And obviously, John speaks very well, very highly opinionated. John as well, and and he doesn't hold back with his views. You know, he doesn't hold back with his views on social media, and and he talked a lot about look, Australia on flying, <laughs> Australia on flying anywhere, and yeah. and all of a sudden, a bunch of us coming from Australia to the US in transit, <laughs> in here, in there. It's just it's a recipe for disaster, but so, so that maybe counts them out. So then is it fair that then the U S open happens and a hundred guys in the draw are from America <laughs> and maybe, <laughs> Canada, maybe, right. maybe it's fair for you and you know, fair, but, but then all of a sudden the, the, the whole ranking system gets distorted. You know, I, I work with guys 300, 350 in the world, ATP. All of a sudden, they can't get into tournaments. They can't travel. You know, almost like the guys that are, again, an unfair advantage. Right. It, it doesn't seem right, you know, from that regard. No, I agree with you 100%. And, and we've all been saying, like, I'm pretty cool and close with Dustin Brown. And we talk, like, quite often. And it's we just think no points should be involved. And it should be, a you know, have a choice. If you, you want to play, you, you come out and play. If you you can't make it or for whatever reason you don't feel comfortable then you don't have to and and, and then that's it so it just becomes a big money tournament which which is fine which is a what's a lot of things going on now but um on the instance with the flying yeah even in the states now people are having to quarantine from state to state depending on where they're coming from to go to another state. so those things are just yeah things are so fluid and just moving and changing it every day every hour i just and like you said, I just don't think it's fair from the point standpoint that you're going to have grand slams that people can't make it to. And on another end, the EU has blocked the U.S. from coming to Europe. So how do we go play the French Open or, or, or Madrid or Rome or anything like that? Like, how does that even work, you know? But you're still going to have a tournament. That's like I said, because the main focus is crowning a year in number one and, and, and you know, having their tour finals. It's not about everybody being able to play. Yeah. And is, is that normal? Do, do you guys feel, obviously, you've, you're 30 years old, I believe, and you've been, yeah. you've been around for a while. <laughs> you know, you've, yeah. you've, you've been out there, you know, and you're not a 30-year-old who went to college who came out. And, you yeah. know, so you, you've got a really good insight into how it's gone. Do you guys as players feel like often, often the tour are making decisions without enough, enough talk with you guys to get your opinions? Yeah, in the sense of a lot of guys that I talk to, whether they're ranked 400 to 20, they really don't even know what's going on. Like, we hear it all the, through the same source, an email that pops through, like, the decision's been made, you know, like, this is what's going on. It's like, what? Like, no one spoke to us about it. And not to say that all four or five, a thousand people have to be spoken to, but there should be some trickle-down system where it comes from one person to another, and you hear about it at least a day or two before it's actually said. So we're reading new news on ESPN or Twitter, just like everyone else, which is kind of unfortunate at the end of the day. And um, But it seems like the top guys know, because <laughs> they, 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 they're able to voice their opinion weeks before about they're not up for the protocols or whatever. But yeah, it's just not a consistent thing. And I and obviously I get it, you know, those guys are the ones bringing in a lot of the financial and the fans. So they're going to obviously, you know, cater to them. But I think the other guys without those guys, it's not really a tournament. It's efficient. Yeah. And, and it's it, absolutely, and I'm jumping into something that I hadn't planned on, but when you mentioned those top guys, obviously you can't go on Twitter, Instagram, it, it's everywhere. That, that's, that's what is selling the sport currently. 
you know, I don't believe that you guys get sold well enough. You know, the the rest of the guys down the down the chain as such. Obviously, there was kind of talk of of trying to almost spread a little bit more of the prize money. It's been going on for years and years. You know, then there was the talk about the top hundred guys all giving five grand or whatever. You know, whatever it was to the poor paupers down the bottom. Um, how serious do you think that is in tennis for the whole ecosystem of tennis that in reality, you know, I think you're around about 300 right now and obviously you've had a successful career, but at 300 without the successful career before, I guess you're going to be struggling financially, you know, and which a world-class player like yourself and there's many, many like that. Um, what's, what's your take on that whole, whole side of tennis? Yeah, that's tough. I always, you know, I have this conversation with my friends and people around all the time. I was like, if I was not, like, good or high level at some point, now I'd be really struggling. But, not luckily, but, you know, I've been blessed and gratefully enough, I've been able to, you know, be up there, save money, have invest, do stuff that I'm able to, during this time, not, like, struggle as if I was 100% always 300. Because I look at that and I play a challenger. And it's first round you lose is $300. You know, my, my rental car was 600 You know, my flight plus someone else is another couple of thousand. And literally, I started playing my first challenger when I was like 14, 15. The prize money check was $7,200. I play now, the prize money check is $7,200. You're talking about 15 years later, and it has not changed, you know? And, and I mean, there's some bigger challengers now, but for the, the uh, meat and potato challengers, it's the same money and there's no way that that's like, okay. I just don't think that's okay. You know, every other, anything else it's if it's successful, it improves, the prize money gets higher, people make more money, but not, not, not at this level. And the disparity, it, it, it's cool. Like the top guys should make more than the other ones, but I think everyone should be able to make a, 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 a living, you know, they should be able to have a car and, and have a place to stay. And, you know, and I know guys who were 300 as well. And when this all hit, they're, they're um, delivering groceries or, 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 or they're moving back home. And I just don't think that's the case one month into tournament stopping. Yeah. Sorry, it's, um, I'm, I'm kind of laughing here to myself as well, just yeah. as, you, as you speak that I, know, I never played anywhere near your level of tennis, yeah. Donald. And, uh, but I, I, I do remember on one occasion ha happening to win an event uh, a $15,000 event and coming home to Ireland and everybody thought I won $15,000. <laughs> right. Johnny, well done. That was a great week you had. Uh, little did, did they know that, like, you know, you were coming out with basically a check for about €1,000 or whatever uh, after taxes. It's, uh, it's not easy out there. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. Like, yeah, I think my first futures check, I, I was young, so it was funny, but it was $200 and I lost in the first round. I was like, man, what can I get? Some video games? You know, like that was all I thought I could buy with it. And, but, but then you get older and you realize like, man, these guys, you know, they have families to feed, they have lights to keep on, they have to, you know, do things with that. And that's just not good enough. If, if you ask me, you know, it's just not good enough. Yeah, I saw, I saw, I read something today that the 350th player in the world, male or female, makes the same amount of money as somebody who works in Starbucks. Yeah, well, facts. And it, yeah, and it's easier. <laughs> yeah, a lot, yeah, a lot easier. A lot easier, yeah. Right, yeah. And less expense and less, all, you know, all of, all of those things. One quick one before I want to get into kind of, because I think you've got a fascinating tennis journey. You know, you've been on our screens since, like you say, you were a young pup, you know. Yeah. Um, by the way, you still look like a young pup. You don't look <laughs> you looking fresh, man. Still <laughs> look. But yeah, is is the level of, of obviously you're playing challenges, you start being playing challenges the last few months, compared to the level of challenges 14, 15 years ago, do you see a big difference in the depth? Uh yeah, to be honest, I do. Like it's it's a little harder to like come through. And and I think the players have a lot to do with it, but I think also this new um, format when they put, they made the tournaments a lot bigger as well. So it, it's made it so it's more matches and the guys are all pretty good. So before you could play, there's a 32 draw. You can kind of maybe get a wild card, beat yeah. him, maybe play a qualifier who beat someone. Now you're in the quarterfinals, right? 
and which is a decent amount of points. Now you have to win one match is three points. Another match is five. Then you have to win another one to maybe get the 14 points or 15 that you have for the quarters. Yeah. And all these guys can play. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot tougher in that aspect and everyone can play, but it's just, yeah, I think it was just easier to kind of sneak some couple good results or be a little more consistent. Because if you were seeded, you didn't play another seed into the quarters. So now you're playing guys that you, like I said, you, you know, you have a, a good chance of playing a qualifier because it was four of them. Yeah. You had some wild cards. You had uh, some guys who were maybe two, 300 that you could beat. I think it's just harder to win six matches in a week than it was to win five in a week because a lot of matches are going to happen back to back. And the level, like you said, has improved, especially from that 200 to, i say, 500. Yeah, yeah. They're a lot better. Really physically demanding as well, having to do that over day in, day out. Yeah, and then do it another week, and then the next yeah. week, and then it's just, it's just hard to do. I just, and you don't find it anymore. Guys are winning back-to-back -back challengers either, unless they're seeded or something like that. It's, it's harder to break through, I think. Yeah, if you're not seeded, I mean, I work with a guy, I still work with a guy, a British guy, Evan Hoyt. And he, Evan had a fantastic kind of 12 months on the futures, got himself up to about 310. And just seeing it, basically, he, he always had to play a guy at least ranked probably 150, 160 mm -hmm. second round. You know, right. so, you know, you win a match and you pick up your three points, but then you, you're beating a guy. You haven't yeah. been a guy 150, 160 to really gain any sort of yeah, traction exactly. in the events, you know, and it's, and, and I guess it's maybe the same at the futures as well when you, you, you keep having that and then maybe the same at the ATP, but it's, it's certainly, it's a tough journey. It's a tough journey. Um, moving back to your, so where did it all start? We've kind of, we started with current, but let's, let's take you way back. Where did, where did the tennis, the whole tennis journey start for you? Um, well, my parents played, my dad played in college. Um, my mom was, um, enjoyed tennis, didn't play for college, but it was more like a weekend warrior competitive tournament player. Yeah. And so they loved playing tennis and they actually met each other playing against each other in mixed doubles that, um, uh, my mom claims she won the match. <laughs> my dad doesn't talk about it much. <laughs> and, um, so when they had me, no real babysitter so I was kind of like on the court like in a, like a stroller or whatever and if I was they were told me if I was good and quiet I got a chance to hit and play so you know when I was quiet I got out there and I hit and I started playing tennis when I was three and loved it like ever since like they would have to um turn the lights off on me in the indoor center that we used to play at now I just wanted to play all the time and I just got better and played with anyone who wanted to play. So as a kid, you know, you, there's people that are like 40 years old that are, could be to your level. Like you can get a hit, good hit from anyone at that level, at that age. So I would hit with uh, people my dad was teaching lessons to, people that are just at the club working out, like friends. It was just anyone. So anyone I could get to hit any balls with me, I was out there. So it kind of started like that. And then I played my first tournament when I was six. I got cheated the whole time because I didn't know how to keep score. My dad didn't think that was important enough to teach me. He's like, oh, no, they're going to be fair. They're going to play. So the guy kept playing the game until he won it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then shortly after, <laughs> they taught me how to keep score. And then from there, it kind of happened fast. I, I started playing more tournaments. I would win a couple. And then things kind of rapid fire when I got to 13 on. And did you... So what did you do with your education? Because you were so good, so young. What happened with education? Yeah, so K through eighth grade, regular school. I went in from um, eight to 2.30. I got picked up uh, aftercare and then onto the tennis courts. Or if I was lucky, my dad would have a break from a lesson and come pick me up from school himself and bring me to the court. So I got to hit, start hitting around four or so. Yeah. But um. Yeah, school and tennis was, tournaments were only on the weekends. Yeah. And school was obviously during the week, and I only got maybe a couple hours of practice during the week. So whenever it was available. Right. And, and then high you, school was online. You did online high school. Yeah. And when did, the, the thing that I've always wondered about you is when did the agents come knocking? <laughs> yeah, so uh, funny story is, 
I was Bob Wang at the Naveen Championships, was a senior event, when I was nine years old with a friend of mine who was about 12. And John McEnroe was playing. It was John McEnroe. It was, uh, I believe Connors was there. And a lot of like other older players were there. And Mansoor Barami, <laughs> he was doing the tricks I used to like. So I, I was there and Macro was hitting serves by himself. And my friend was like, hey, let's ask him if he needs a warm-up partner. And I was like, I was too shy. He's like, I'll go do it. So he went over as we both hit with him. John apparently liked how I played at nine, told his agent. His agent comes up to my um, parents and I, like, the next day, we thought, we didn't know who he was because he had, like, loafers on and an umbrella. We just, it was just not used to seeing that from where I'm from. <laughs> and um, we, we kind of talked, and he was, like, cool, and he was, like, you know, gave us his card. If you ever need anything, let me know. So, you kind of in touch, but not really in touch. So, I would say around 13 is when it all really started. So, I signed with a management company when I was 14. Right. And which I, which was that guy, Gary Swain, um, at, at 14. So he, John gave him the approval to let him manage myself and him. Well, to let me in actually, cause he was the main thing. Yeah. And um, that's where it started. But it was a lot of agents coming after it at that point, but we already had our mindset that Gary was the guy. And do you, I, I suppose your, your reflection on that if you were to go back and, and be advising you back when you were 14, mm. what, what, what lessons would you, would you have learned and what, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, so I think the upbringing from that time to about that time was like great because everything I was doing was like uh, different. No one had done it before. So it was like uh, we're learning as you're going, you know, like everything's happening for the first and it's no blueprint. You can't follow anything. So you just kind of do what you, you feel is right. So when I signed, I think at the end of that year, I finished top 10 in the world in juniors. And then by the next year starting it, I became number one in the world in juniors. And then at that point, that's when it really became different. Like, um, tour events were coming to me asking me to play their tournament and wanted to pay me just because they wanted that to be the first place that I won my first tour match. So, so now it's like a decision. Do I play futures and make that 200 we we're talking about yeah, yeah. or play a tour event and I'm going to make five to 10 grand, you know, and to further take my career to the next level and I can travel and afford this, that, and the third. What I would have done different to answer your question is, I would have played fewer tour events and taken fewer wild cards in that sense. Yep. Maybe trained a lot more, like go into the lab, like I like to say, practice, get stronger physically. Maybe sprinkled in a few tour events here and there, but not as many because that really hurt the psyche for, for, for a long time. And that would have been the only thing I really changed because the rest was all learning on the fly because hindsight's twenty twenty. And how old were you when you broke top 100? Uh, I just turned 18. Amazing. So, yeah. Unbelievable. So, so for the, just for the listeners, Donald, so you were, if I'm right, and correct me if I'm wrong here, at, at 14, you were top 10 in the World Juniors. At yeah. 15, you were World Junior number one and, right. won, and won Grand Slams. Yeah. And then at 18, just turned 18, you were top 100 ATP. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's weird because at the time, the bar was like so high on what I was supposed to do that that wasn't even good enough like when I was like 18 and I was 70 in the world it was like that's just that's not it that's not what they wanted I was supposed to be winning the real Wimbledon <laughs> you know at, at the time so that kind of like that kind of hurt so even though I was doing it like now if I was doing it I would it would be unreal and you would hear all this stuff but but at the time you heard a lot of stuff but it, it started coming a little negative because I wasn't doing what they thought it should have been doing because everything else it moved so fast why were we to think this is going to move any different you know but little did I know looking at pictures of a 14 15 year old me <laughs> was who what, what 25 year old was I going to be anyway you know so and Donald, just again to, to touch on it, when you say hurting the psyche from jumping into too many of the tour events, for the listeners again, could you explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so, you know, at that point, I'm not used to losing at all. 
like hardly ever. So I'm, I'm beating every tournament I play. It's either a final or a win. And, and to be all, all honest, singles, doubles, like it, it was just what it was. And when I jump into the pros, it's like a whole new thing. Now I'm losing first round. Like my first ever tour match against Robbie Ginepri the year he made it to the semis of the Open. So he's like top, almost top 20. He beats me like two and three. I feel I played pretty well, but had no chance. And then I play Jen Michael Gamble, like in another one. And then I'm playing Paul Goldstein. I'm just playing all these guys who are legit, like professionals that are top 100. This is what they do for a living. So it became winning all the time to losing all the time to not fitting in in the locker room because I'm 15. These guys are, are adults. Like I look at myself now, like, what do I have in common with a 15-year-old to hang out and talk to, you know, about if yeah. I was in the locker room? It's just what it is. And then on the other end, I was taking an opportunity away from someone who was 25, 26 that could have gotten that wild card and could have potentially done something with it. So, but little did they know the tournaments were asking me to play, which which is kind of like an interesting thing. And yeah, it just, that's what I would have done different. And that's what hurts. So I'm not comfortable in the locker room. I'm not winning matches. I'm getting negative press from it, which I'm not used to. And it's not fun. Yeah. It just isn't fun. And so yeah. all those things combined kind of set you back a little bit. And you start contemplating, do you even want to play? Not realizing you're like really far ahead of the curve, but it just doesn't seem that way. Like perspective is totally different yeah. when you're in it versus watching it. Absolutely, because it's, it's, it's all about context, isn't it? It's context yeah. where you are. So, like, as, as I guess some a kind of happy-go-lucky youngster who's winning a lot, yeah. did, it, did it turn quite dark in your mind at that moment? Did you, did you have some difficult times with it? Yeah, fact, for sure, it turned very dark. I would tell my parents, like, I don't even want to be here. I'll be in the middle of a match and, not, and say I don't want to be here, you know? And then, which was tough and they're trying to give me perspective but I'm just not enjoying you know any of the things that are going on at the moment um you know I just wanted to be at home with my friend hanging out like you know we're all going through high school and they're hanging out and they have girlfriends and they're going to movies and on dates and you know I'm out here doing this something that at the time doesn't feel enjoyable you know um yeah and it just just how it felt yeah and I just, yeah, I mean, looking back now, I understand it all, but at the time, I didn't. Yeah. So, so world junior number one at 15, top 100 at 18. Surely you're going to be a top 10, top five player in the world. Yeah. Why not? Uh, yeah. So, at that point, to be honest, I thought, looking back now, I could have worked a lot harder than I did at the time, um, especially because I was taking a brunt of a lot of the attention. So a lot of the guys, my peers that I was beating at the time were able to like keep working really hard and in the quiet and get better. And they had something to kind of like, I feel like the guys who made it to that level at the time kind of had people that around their age, they were pushing them as well that they could look to. And it was like a, a healthy jealousy, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, yeah. he does well. Well, I think I can do that because I can play with him. I didn't really have that for the longest time. Like, Kay Nishikori, he, didn't, he came around a little after that, and he was from Japan, so we didn't spend a lot of time together, but we kind of saw each other as, like, guys that we wanted to, you know, do what he did. And the tournament that really hurt me, to be honest, I don't think I've ever said this out, out in public, was I was 73 in the world. I was 18. K was probably 300, barely winning challenger matches. He came through and won Delray from the qualies. But his draw, up until that point, I had played him a couple times. I had beat him in the finals of a future, like two and two. Like, it was like, I, I liked playing him. He, I would have played him second round. And he beat a guy that I was up 5-0, on in the first round, Amir Delic. And he ended up going through the draw and beating every person that I had beaten to get to, like, the finals. Yep. So, and then he won the tournament at 18. Yep. So that kind of, like, it's, instead of, like, pumping me up, that kind of, like, really hurt quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and then I just found it really hard after that to, like, really make any really 
big strides if, if that makes um yeah. any it's sense fun. and yeah just kind of yeah i don't even know like i really couldn't tell you why it wasn't toxic like i wanted it to be i was putting so much pressure on myself and i was getting so much heat from like other people putting pressure on me as well and and then it was trying to get rid of my parents and it was just a lot of stuff going on and it was really hard to just focus on tennis yeah and i think that's the best way to get there yeah no absolutely because, because again to put the context on it you've had an incredible career do you know yeah. you, like i mean people would give their left up <laughs> you know to, yeah. do what, to do what you've done you know right. yeah but you've had the results that you've had but probably if there was one question i wanted to ask you today it's how you view your career so do you view your career as a successful career so so when you're in it there's always stuff you want to do right and then um but to answer your question in in, in the short version yes i do but i think i want it to be better and i think i still have some time to do some stuff i want to do but when you're in it you like there's always something you think you can do differently and then when you sit back or you have some people um tell you stuff and it's like hey man just just look at it you know like from where i've actually come from the things i've like done and to get there and like with it's been me and my parents primarily it's been a great um ride and i wouldn't take it back for anything no, no it's, that's good to hear you, you, you seem you always seem and I, it's such a pleasure talking to you yeah. but you always come across very happy you always come across you know with a big smile on your face and it's i think it's it's just great to hear you say that because it's because you have <laughs> you know you've had, an, you've, had an, you've had an incredible career you know and i think it's in tennis and, and i think maybe what this pandemic has maybe helped some people as well is it's probably the first time that we've all had three months to just maybe sit back and reflect a little bit because it, it the tennis world is so go go here flight practice gotta be there lose first round feel rubbish onto the next one it's such <laughs> a you never really have that time have you found that you've had a bit of time to reflect on your career the last few months yeah to be honest this time has been great for me i've I've always like not jokingly but said it out loud i've you know i've been blessed never to have a real injury that's taken me out for a long period of time so yeah. through these 15 years or so it's been like you said go next tournament this i've never had a chance to really take some time off and this has been quite awesome for me in, in a way you know i'm fortunate how it had to happen but to be able to sit back and, and just look at some things and enjoy the things that I've had and done and the relationships I've made with people and, and the, those type of things have been really important for me and it's been an unreal time and it's made me appreciate it more being on the court and playing and I just can't wait to get back out there. Donald, I, I, I get a sense off you that that love for the game has obviously come back in abundance having talked to you before and now again to, today with Dan um, do you, do you believe that you can come back and beat your career high? Uh, is that a goal of yours? Or is that something that you think that uh, you'd like to achieve? Oh, yeah, for sure. The lo love is, is definitely back. It, it's never really, like, left. It's just kind of like things go bad. It's just like, why am I even doing this anymore? But, but I do believe it can happen, and I want to go further, and I really would love to win my first, like, tour title. And I've been to a few finals, some doubles finals, but I would love to do that. And I just am older and more mature, and I'm just kind of learning more how to maneuver through myself now so I know myself a little better in my strengths and weaknesses, and I just want to stick with that and utilize it and just just go from there. And I, I really do love the game. Like I said, if I take a couple of days off, I miss it. Like, I need it. Like, I have rackets around the house that I just pick up randomly and swing around or pick up tennis balls. and always a ball in my pocket so the, the game is, is is number one i love it for sure and what so of your, what have your what have your best experiences been as a player um to be honest it's, it's kind of been playing for my country like uh, my yeah. first olympic selection was unreal uh, my first davis cup was crazy um and honestly Beating Andy Murray was unreal at kind of how it happened. Like, <laughs> I didn't expect for it to happen. I was putting in work on the court, but it wasn't really translating that well to um, the actual match play. 
and that, and that question kind of gave me the feeling that I could play with those guys. And that's kind of where it started. That was the year I kind of got up to like my career high started the next year, but that year was kind of the springboard there. So those three things have been um, amazing for me, but to play Davis cup was, was an unreal, it was a dream I've had with my friends. We would sit there and watch the TV and be like, yeah, well, one day we're going to be out there. And, and to, you fulfill that and do it and and then to play in the olympics that's just you know i grew up eating wheaties and i see those guys on the wheaties box you know and i go upstairs and i have my olympic tracksuit and the ring they give you with your name on it, and it's a picture of the whole team and you know it is just things are just special moments that at the time it's kind of go back and forth but those things really stick out for me i tell you what donald the, the listeners were loving you but we're, we're 70% listeners in the UK. Yeah. You just talked about Sir Andy Murray. Meeting <laughs> <laughs> Sir Andy Murray. You know, they're going to get to this moment in the podcast. You better be good the next 10 minutes or so at the end of this podcast because they've all of a sudden got a bit of a different view of you. You know, yeah. you know has sure. he ever beaten you? Yo, that's a funny story, right? Like, so. <laughs> I beat him that first time, and since then, I swear it feels like he's like foaming at the mouth every time we play. Like I'm barely winning games. Like it's barely winning games. So funny story is after that year, that year I played him three times. So I beat him at Indian Wells. I played him in the fourth round of the U.S. Open. Yeah, that's right. And, and that match was pretty pretty decent. The first set, then he got rained down for like three days, and he came back and gave me the sauce. And then. The the third time, it was my first final in Bangkok, and I was playing probably some of the best tennis of my career. Like I I just I beat the Garcia Lopez who had won the tournament before. I beat Monfils who was top ten in the semis, and I was playing Andy in the finals. And I'm playing well, and I mean he misses five balls the whole match, unforced errors, beats me <laughs> two and zero, <0. laughs> and I was like, and then we come off the court and. Mike Sell was helping me out at the time, and my mom was there who was like, yo, that's just what it is. And I was just like, wow. And, and I felt, I did not even feel like, I felt bad, but not to the point of, you know, like, like this is the end. It, and I still went on to play well the next year, but I mean, I was playing very well, yeah. and I had zero shot. And I was like, man, this is what it takes to win a title. I got to come through a former champion and two top 10 guys. I was like, this is unreal. But he beat me like a drum. And then I played 2015. I played him in Scotland in Davis Cup. And again, the first set, he probably missed four or five shots. And this is really funny. I, I ended up winning the second. He went up two sets to love. I win the third set. And I get back to the bench, and Curry is like, "Yes, this is what we came for to get a set. This is what we want." And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, "Wow, <laughs> that hurt." <laughs> and um, <laughs> so that was another one. And then he also beat me in San Diego. I was filling in for John for Davis Cup, and it was on red clay. And he, he gave me the sauce there. But like I said, ever since that first win, yeah, yeah. I feel like he's made it a point to give me nothing. Like nothing. <laughs> you angered the beast, huh? You angered the beast. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, he's like, he's unreal, man. Like, and his strengths and stuff, like his forehand hooks into my backhand as a lefty, and, and then his backhand is so good to so my forehand, to so his backhand yeah. isn't as effective as it would be against some other people. So, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I enjoy all of our meetings, whether how bad they are, because I at least have that one. You've just won. You've just won. You've just won them all back. <laughs> yeah. you're, a, you're a you're a natural. You're a professional. You've done really really well there, Donald. <laughs> what on the on, in terms of just getting into a little bit more tennis talk, actually, Donald. In in term, how important do you think it is if you know youngsters and we have a lot of young kind of up and coming tennis players listening to these podcasts? How important it is is it to have a real defined game identity and and that you put on the court, in your opinion? Oh, man, that, that's everything. I, I believe that's the number one thing. Like, you know, for me, it's been, it was tough because I could do so many different things. Like in juniors, it was kind of a field thing. So how the match was going, I would maybe play to the guy's forehand or drop shot more. I would come in a lot this match or I would yeah, yeah. kick here. I would, it would change. 
but when you get to the highest level and you don't have that specific way that you play, yeah. it takes a little longer to put it all together uh, and, you know, kind of, yeah, find it. Like you look at guys like Dimitrov and stuff like that. Like it takes longer to put, cause he has so many different skill sets that he could play any type of way. Like it takes a while to pick how you want to play because you can fall into a lot of different things. But if you look at other guys and they don't have as many options, they kind of succeed a lot faster because they focus on that one thing. I remember being in a Q&A with Monfils. Yeah. And they were like, what do you think you could do better to get to the, the next level? And we thought he was joking. He goes, run faster, jump higher, and slide more. And we were like, <laughs> everyone starts laughing. He's like, no, no, I'm serious. Like, he really embodied that into the sense that you could tell like you know like he focused on it and that's what he liked to do and he really believed in it another guy like Dustin Brown the way he plays is so different but he believes in that and that's the way he plays and I just think you can perfect those things and guys that are baseliners or serving volleyers like when they can like make that one way the best they can possibly do it I think that's how they like get there and I think it's better to have a clear-cut plan than to have a lot of different ideas in your mind and how do you play so over the time i'd like to say it's all court um initially like growing up it was coming in quite a bit and you know like using the hands and stuff and then i got more into like playing through the baseline where i could beat some guys like that playing more defense but when i'm playing good it's it's proactive tennis so it's on top of the baseline it's moving the guy around it's me finishing the points off with the net and just using my forehand as much as possible very, very clear, very, very clear and <clears throat> distinguished way to play uh, th- the game as well. And just for the young, for the young people again listening in uh, uh, on it, Donald, how, how important would you put competition in the development of a young player growing up? I think competition is everything, you know, because I know a lot of guys who are really good at practice and you like, yeah, let's tee it up. Let's put some uh, something on it. Let's play some points. And the whole thing goes to the, to the, to the ground. It's um, match play is key. Even at, I feel like winning at any level is great and helps you get to the next level because it builds that confidence that you know how to play in certain points and situations. And it's just, it becomes instinctual, which when it's not, you're thinking about it. And if you're not in flow and you're not flowing and you don't have enough, tennis is so quick, you don't have enough time to think about what you want to do on everything. Some things have to be just instinct and kind of reactionary. And for me, like winning a lot helps. And I know everyone, if you talk to all the top guys, that there's no solution and no alternative to winning and playing matches. There, There is nothing else that's going to get you to that point. And winning begets winning and the more matches you win the more confidence you build and the more confidence you have the more secure you are in how you play any idea when you were 14 13 14 how many matches you were playing a year wow um Tough question i know but just yeah let's see like so yeah it was a lot so i would play a tournament almost every weekend if i could when i was living in chicago and as I got, and I play some ITFs, and I just really think it, it matters like how deep you go in the tournaments. Yeah. So a lot of like the U.S. tournaments, there were big draws, yeah. so it would take like seven matches to win a tournament, and I would play doubles. Yeah. So there was another like five or six. Yeah, yeah. And then I would go play a weekend turn and play another four matches. Yeah. I would say a hundred easily, the eighty to a hundred, yeah, something like that. Yeah, because I thought I am. Um, it was the year that Shapovalov. And City Pass were coming through because I saw those guys at a lot of the junior events. But it was kind of their last year juniors. And I looked at both of those guys and, and on on kind of official tournaments, so futures or ITF juniors, those guys in both in one year, I think they'd played ninety-five and ninety yeah. or something like that. You know, it was a yeah. and then I was then, then you go and look at some guys, and we might have a couple of guys at the academy in Spain. Yeah. I'm like, guys, you've played 32 matches this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've had one guy that, I mean, we'll not mention a name because he's a great guy, but that myself and John know, he played 32 matches over seven years, you know, and like oh, saying, I want to right. be a professional tennis player. And it's, yeah. you know, just having those 
you know, I always like those guys, and, and I always think a ratio of kind of two wins, one loss, at least, mm-hmm. or three wins, one loss in those kind of years. You know, I'll, I'll have players coming again to the academy, and I'll look at their, I'll look at their stats, and it's like one eight lost eighteen. You're getting you're getting it yeah. wrong. You get, I mean, at ATP level, maybe you know, if you're yeah, right. in the world. <laughs> But yeah. in the development years, you're getting your schedule wrong. It's not rocket science here, guys. You have to yeah. be putting yourself out there. You have to be competing. You have to be learning, you know, as you're yeah. going. Um, right. A subject I'd love to, love to touch on, but it's a, it's a podcast in itself, you know, it's a, is, is discrimination in sport. You know, you're talking to two white males here. So it's, it's difficult probably for us to have a real understanding of, yeah of what it's like to be in a sport like tennis as, as the minority, you know, um, how, how's that been? What are your thoughts on that? Is that something you feel does happen in the sport of tennis? Yeah, for sure. I I grew up in uh, the Midwest. So like Chicago, like Illinois, like, it's not like the best, but um, to be honest, I have started, I played tournaments where we're playing in the suburbs and I would be in the finals and because that's not what they wanted to show, they put our finals on the back court that no one could see, right. you know, and like some other matches would be on the front courts. Like they didn't want anyone to know, like that was what was going on. Like it was just that, that blatant. Or, and to, just to the extent of when you're playing and you can't see anyone like that, that looks like you when you're out there as well, that, that's also different, you know? So you play other sports and, so the hangout aspect, the traveling aspect, you know, what do you do away from the courts? It, it all becomes like a kind of a question mark. So you're always, like you said, the minority, it's always just you. So I become really comfortable in, in the environment, but, um, you know, I always like bringing a friend around, like just someone you could just talk to on a level that you're just comfortable speaking about the stuff you like to talk about, you know, whether it's anything, the type of music or just the stuff you like to do. So I think, and a lot of the other guys that I play with, they feel the the same way. They just, you know, it's just the sport. It's just what the sport is. You chose the sport, you know what it is. It's just what it's going to be. But I actually feel better in Europe and stuff like that when when I'm actually playing in other countries because it's so diverse and everyone is so, so different. It's not the same mindset, but in the States, it's definitely tough in that aspect from the high up to down. So it's um, definitely something that needs to be fixed. And I think it it can be fixed and they're trying to, and it's just bringing more awareness to the sport where it looks cooler for the people of my, like that look like me that want to play because we have the basketball, the football, even even you have baseball and you have all these sports that are, way cooler in their mind because tennis is seen as like a, a all-white sport even down to the clothes yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that you wear yeah, yeah. when you see on tv and it's country club you have no access to it um you can't afford it and the people you see playing are the people that you think feel a certain type of way about you so it's, it's just hard to do and you don't have anyone to look at they like yo I, I like that that's cool yeah. So I think once that can happen and it's cooler and obviously the money gets better because it just it doesn't make sense to use all take all of this because the amount of money, as you guys know, that it costs to travel, coaching, to play and to get to the highest level. Yeah. A lot of people from my demographic don't even have that to even begin with. Yeah. So it's not even if I didn't have the help of someone like Gary or John saying something and someone seeing me and giving me the opportunity, I wouldn't be here either. So it's more of a opportunity thing, accessibility and seeing somebody that you think makes that look cool. And you want to do that. If I had to answer that question. No, very good. Very good. And what what about on the, because obviously we're not going to be able to attack the bigger picture that right. you know obviously we we've all seen the pictures and we've all yeah. seen the news in the states the last the last yeah. few months and um and it's real you know it is yeah. it, it's real you know which <laughs> right. we can look at it whichever way we want to look at it Do, but in terms of tennis i guess i again talking as a white male it's very easy for me to say this but it seems to me i'd like to think that almost tennis is our language in some ways you know mm-hmm. i think tennis you know, I spoke to we spoke to Sam Qureshi 
who I used to play a bit of doubles with. And, you know, I remember, you know, being in Spain, an English guy, it was around about 9-11 time. And it was an English guy eating with a good friend of his doubles partner from Pakistan with another guy from Iran, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then it might have been Dustin as well, you know, so there was like, right, yeah. and, and it's, it, it's just such a, I, 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 from my eyes, tennis, tennis is just a, a universal language. We all, we all are tennis players and that's how it works. But from obviously you're you're coming from different uh, different eyes, you know how how do you find that on the two? I suppose within the other players, the officials, without going into any names or anything like that, do do you feel that same way, or do you still feel you're discriminated against within the tour? Yeah, so so tennis, like you say, it really is that kind of an international language. So yeah, so in that sense, you're all competitors and playing and from so many different places that it's not enough of you to feel that way about anyone, you know, from a place. So you just kind of all in these terrible or environments or, or not terrible, but like tough environments where you're not at home and the food's not great and the hotel's not great. Yeah. So you're bonding on a total different level. Yeah. So I feel like you build those connections with just people. And yeah. it's not about where you come from, how you look and whatever. So in that sense, I don't think, it's really there, like just out there with players. You might have a few players who might feel a certain way and say something, but it's so small of, of a number that it doesn't affect anything. They're not in power to change anything. I, I think it's the establishment, you know, your federations, your, 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 you know, where you're coming to get to that level. So to get to that level, you all have to be exceptional to even get there. It, to some extent, you're better than 99.9% .9 of the people. So I think, yeah, I think it's more of developing to the point of getting to that level or situation where you can meet those guys where it becomes equal. It's just about playing who's the best tennis player. Yeah. And and how do we make the sport more accessible? Yeah, I, I, that's that's the thing. I, I just, I think like you got to have uh, more exposure to it. Like you said, if, if, if like we were talking about, if, if only the top guys are the ones on TV or people know about and you know and you know for whatever reason that's what they look like that's just what it's going to be it's not I don't I just find it hard to unless you can introduce more people to the sport help out get them the rackets the, the really good coaching which is very important is the coaching yeah. and the knowledge and the, the financial part that that's the biggest thing and then I think you're not going to see a big change in it until you see huge success from a certain demographic as well so when you see a lot of black guys or not a lot but a few winning a grand slam winning big tournaments and then it looks like it's, it's that and then you know coaching becomes better and the fans start to change and and it's a different people and then the sport becomes cooler yeah yeah, no, very, good. What, very good. What would be the, the let's say you're the head of the ATP, Donald, yeah. what would be the three big things that you would change in tennis? Yeah, um, so the ATP, I, I don't know what they would really change, you know, as, as far as the ATP, but I honestly would find a lot of appeal to the sport if it became more of a team-type aspect as well. Yeah. Like... Um, you know, you get some guys out there, it's a guaranteed contract. You know, guys are not just doing this, that, and the third to make ends meet. And, you know, tennis would get a lot better. It would just be better for the fans. You can kind of relate and, you know, latch on to a team instead of only the five people you see on TV here and there. Yeah, yeah. And I, that, that's my main, I would say, if it became more of like a, something along those lines, it would be better. Yeah, and having that secure, I think tennis players and tennis coaches, we've talked about this yeah. in a couple of podcasts as well. It's, you know, like a, a tennis coach like myself, and I right. would, there's hundreds of me. It's not, I'm far from special on this, but I'm pretty much traveling 15, 20 weeks a year without getting paid. Right. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, it's kind of the reality of futures challenger level tennis. You know, right. the, the guy, the guys and the girls, they can't afford to be paying out a thousand euros plus expenses plus this plus that plus that so yeah. you you're almost relying on players in that way not having security but you're also 
relying on coaches doing that you know so so then what, yeah. what happens is you maybe then don't get the most professional of coaches at some events either you know because right. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that's my thing like it trickles down and it just that's why i think and in my honest this is a little off but i think the the cheating not the cheating but the advantages in tennis are not people who might take some performance enhancing drugs i think it's the opportunities and the money that the top guys are able to have over all the other ones that they're able to get the best trainer the best coach the best recovery the best travel situations all the practice court all the time you need and that's the difference you know i think if everyone was able to at least be on a somewhat even playing field to that extent it would be better because you wouldn't be as stressed out like i know guys you're getting tight playing a doubles match because this next match you could make i don't know five six hundred more dollars you know or something like that and that just shouldn't be the case so i've never thought of that point before like you put it you put that so well like yeah I, I played wimbledon a couple of times mm-hmm. and in 2005 i bought some string nice yeah it was nice like it was like you know i was about 140 in the world doubles and i bought this string oh my goodness i was like and i paid to get the real guys to string it rather than me doing like four strings at a time and and i was i was on court and the feeling i couldn't believe we actually nearly beat the ryan brothers in the second round that year and i was and we and we practiced as well we practiced doubles for like two weeks leading in you know and those like you say the the performance enhancement you get from all of those little bits and those little marginal gains at the level that you are at massive and it's it, it isn't something i've spent a lot of time thinking on so i think it's a brilliant point that you've made you know yeah. really really good point um last question before we have a couple of quick fire i think you might have touched on it but anyway but what imprint do you want to leave from your tennis career yeah so for me i just want um to hopefully inspire some more kids to play you know whether they look like me or not just in general that that, that what I did was was cool and they they enjoyed it and they liked the way I played and they got a smile and fun and I, you know I've gotten fans hit me up that they were watching my match and their wife got a good cry after I won like they felt the emotions with me like that stuff hits me different because I play with emotion and that is real like that's where you connect with people on a real thing it's not just something on tv like they really are feeling it and are in it with you and for me it would be that i just want to leave like an impression on anybody that i left an impression on or or any kid that's like i can do that too he looks just like me or i can relate to that and i want to be or do something similar to that anyone that listens to this podcast donald i promise you you've had an impression on Honestly, appreciate you've it. had a massive impression on myself and I'm sure John the same. You've 100%. been absolutely fantastic. And, and I think the more people that can listen to this, kids, parents, coaches, I think you'll, have a, you'll make a big impression on. And then obviously people that are going to continue following your career for, hey, the next five, ten years, who knows how yeah. long it's going to happen. Right, you know, everyone's playing to their 40 now. <laughs> exactly, it's the new 30. It's the new 30. <laughs> So a big thank you. John's going to take you through our traditional quick fire round. But John made, I mean, our loyal listeners are going to be saying, John, you can't ask that question. He asked you one of the quick fire questions 10 minutes ago about the rule change in tennis. So I apologize to the listeners, those that like their routines of the podcast. We've John was very, he was... I'm sorry. I jumped the gun on us, lads. I'm very, very sorry. He switched it on you. So over to the quick fire. Sweet. Uh, just before I do the, the quick fire, uh, I w- just want to shout out what Dan did say there. So it's been unbelievable uh, having you on this podcast today. I know you came on a few weeks ago with our academy in Ireland, and uh, you've left a hell of an impression on my, myself and the people of Ireland that listen in on that webinar. And I'm really looking forward to getting this podcast out with Dan as well. It's quick fire time, Donald. Are you ready? I'm ready. Good man. Here we go. Server return. Sir. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. U.S. Open or not? U.S. Open. Injury timeout or not? Injury timeout. (laughs) 
five-minute warm-up or not? Or not. Clay or hard? Hardcore, all day. Rata quick fire run. Rata or Roger? Ooh. <laughs> Yo, man, I, I like both of those guys, man. But I really, Rafa's lefty, his southpaw, I, I mess with that. that that's, my, that's my guy. you got to go. Donald, you're a star, honestly, man. The best of luck the next few months. I hope you can get, you know, fully back onto the competition court. And I hope to see you out there sometime. Like I say, my guy will be playing some of the challenges and it'd be great to see you out there on the, on the tour sometime. Yeah, yeah. Let's say what's up for sure. Let, let, let's, let's chat it up next time I see you. A top man. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Later. A massive thank you to Donald Young for, for the podcast. And once again, a big thank you to you guys for listening. If this is your first time listening to Control the Controllables, then please do check out all our other podcasts. There's another 32. Um, I think we're getting a really nice selection of players parents coaches physios you know sports psychologists you know really trying to get a good overview of the sport and and connect with people's stories you know as as of next week we're going to be mental health awareness week where we're going to have a podcast every single day we're going to be hearing people's stories we're going to be hearing their experiences their learnings and it's a, it's a vitally important subject that up until recently is, there's been a stigma attached. And that's something that we really want to play a role and use the platform to, to get people feeling more comfortable and, and, and recognising that it is normal to not feel okay. And it's okay. And that's, that's how people are. So please tune into those as well. Uh, make sure you share, refer to a friend, as we always say, rate and review the podcast. It's really helping get the numbers up of people that get to listen to these amazing stories of these amazing players who are sharing their insights. Um, so a big, big thank you to you all. Um, keep supporting. Keep listening. I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host is John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.